Right on. So Matthew chapter 19, we're going to pick it up at verse 13 where we uh, left off last week. And uh, it's kind of fitting that uh, following this teaching on marriage that we talked about last uh, Sunday, um, the, you know, we talked about the union of a, a man and a woman being the pinnacle of human relationship, marriage, God's design, his plans, his purpose, uh, that uh, uh, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. And it's fitting that following that, that teaching on uh, marriage, that there should be a lesson for parents and in regards to children. And that uh, we see here Jesus, uh, the parents bringing their little children to Jesus. And so it says in verse 13, the children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Um, ultimately, you know, when you think about marriage, the two becoming one flesh is really fulfilled in a kind of unique way in God's design and that children that are brought forth from that. And here, you know, these parents are bringing uh, their children to Jesus to bless them. And the disciples, I don't know what was going on with them. They saw this as an inconvenience. They saw the kids as an inconvenience. You know, I think that they're kind of stirring around on a Sunday morning sometimes. I see them coming to the front all stuff. I think, man, I don't ever want us to think that kids are an inconvenience. God loves them. That, it, that it's good that they're here with us and they're worshiping uh, with us. And the disciples saw them as an inconvenience and they found fault with the whole situation. And so they began to rebuke the children, rebuke the parents. And it's interesting that the word rebuke um, in the original language that, that is, Matthew uses to describe that which the disciple, uh, disciples were doing is that same word of rebuke that Jesus gave when he stood in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and he rebuked the wind and the waves and they were silent at his command. And I don't know if the disciples had decided that the children were a nuisance or whether they thought Jesus was too tired for such an interaction, but Jesus said this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so contrary to what the disciples might have been thinking at that time, uh, children are not a nuisance to Jesus. In fact, I would say this, nobody's a nuisance to Jesus ever. You know, you might be a nuisance to me. I might be a nuisance to you. But none of us are ever a nuisance to Jesus. Isn't that good to know? And especially children. They're not a waste of time to him. In fact, you know, we saw... A few weeks back in Matthew chapter 18, um, when the discussion of the disciples turned to this um, subject of greatness in the kingdom and what defines greatness in the kingdom. And Jesus uh, took a little boy, and a little child, a young child, and called that child into uh, the midst of them and had him stand before the disciples. And Jesus told them that unless they became like a little child... Uh, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's amazing how quickly, once again, these guys have forgotten. You know, in Mark's account of this, this little story, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was in, indignant with his disciples, that he was angry that this was going on. We don't read that about Jesus very often. That that this was one of those rare times that he was angry. And so, you know, it's, it's very natural for parents 
to bring their children to Jesus, especially if you've experienced Jesus, you've experienced the joy of salvation, the joy of meeting uh, with the Lord and having relationship with him and the blessing that comes with it. We, we want our kids, as parents, we want our kids to experience those same blessings. You know, I'm always ragging on my kids. <laughs> Eli this morning, hey, buddy, it's time to put the phone away and go grab your Bible, come sit with dad, spend some time in the word as the day gets started. This is important. And, you know, you, 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 you feel like you're correcting and on them all the time, but it, it really, what's at the heart? It's not religious. It's not rules and regulations. It's like, no, I want my son to experience what I'm getting to experience with Jesus. Jesus changed, Jesus changed my life. It's the center of my life. And I want my boy to have that. I want him to know that. And so as parents, we, we, we bring our children to Jesus. And the beauty of it is this, is that Jesus is happy to take our children into his arms and to bless them. Uh, from here, in this little uh, chapter, Ma Matthew tells us about an exchange, a conversation, we're about to look into this, that, that happens between Jesus and a young man. And this is actually like one of my personal favorite interactions between an individual and Jesus in, in the gospel accounts. I love this one. It's, it's got some amazing little things tucked away in it, and ultimately, it's actually a, it's a sad story because it involves a man's soul and it concerns eternal life. Let's check it out in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. <clears throat> The first thing Matthew tells us as he begins to recount this interaction uh, between this man and Jesus is this little thing that Matthew loves when he wants his readers to slow down and just to investigate the story a bit. Verse 16, he says, and behold, behold, it means slow down here. You need to put on the brakes a little bit and, you know, call attention to what is being said here so that you can see what I'm trying to tell you so that you can hear it and, and apprehend it if you'll slow down and you'll think about what's being said. It says, a man came up to Jesus. Now, when you take the different gospel accounts, um, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, who all tell this story, what we find out about this young man is that, first of all, he was young. He was wealthy. He was a ruler. In fact, he was a synagogue ruler, uh, which was an unusual thing for a young guy uh, tells us that in regards to knowing that he's a synagogue ruler, that in regards to his character, in regards to the requirements of being religious, this guy was righteous. He was an honorable young man. And uh, 
This was a young man with power and with influence. And I love what Mark's gospel tells us because Mark tells us that this man came running to Jesus. And so in the midst of the scene, he comes running to Jesus and Mark actually tells us that he gets down on his knees when he asks the question. And so kind of just get that picture in your mind. He kneels before Jesus, comes running, kneels before him and says, teacher, what must I do? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so there's eagerness in this man. You know, he's running to Jesus. There is reverence in him as he, he kneels before Jesus. And in spite of his honorable character, his righteousness, his religious zeal, regardless of his morality, I might say in spite of his position even in the religious community, that he felt somehow there was a deficiency in his spiritual life. That there was a definite need for something more. And so he asked this question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Great question. Or at least, you know, I would say this, it has all the appearances of a great question. It has all the appearances of a great question because it, it has to do with acquiring eternal life. And if, if there's one thing that every soul, that every person, that every man, woman, and child in this place should settle in their hearts, it's this question. How do I have eternal life? What happens when I die? How is eternal life attained? And so this young man asks Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? But here's the thing you can miss at the first glance if you don't slow down like Matthew asked you to. That compacted together in this question is good and error in the same question. The good is this. He has a desire for eternal life. His, he's, he's feeling this definite need for something more than what he is experiencing. And he seems to have real sincerity as he comes to Jesus. That's all good. But there's also error in his question. And the error was his approach to salvation. He was man-centered, self-centered. And the error was that his question focused on works rather than faith. What must I do is his question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And this is where this conversation is super interesting to me. Because Jesus doesn't, flatter the man. He doesn't make it easy for him. All of his youthful enthusiasm of running to Jesus is not met with like, you know, Jesus laying out some easy requirements for him. No, what Jesus is going to do is set before this young man the ideal of God's law. You know, it's been said that easygoing disciples are easily made. They say easy come, easy go. It's true spiritually too. You know, James said this, he said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be made perfect, complete, lacking nothing. See, easy come, easy go. Jesus isn't after that. Jesus is after disciples that he's making perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus is making us steadfast and he does that not by making life easy, not by making discipleship easy, but by calling us to total surrender, complete surrender in our lives. And so Jesus leads this 
young man in a conversation that is a call we're going to see to total surrender in his life. Really, it's like this. You know, if, if you would have eternal life, young man, it's not about what you would do, but it's about where you would put your faith. It's not about what you would do, but it would be about understanding what I'm going to do for you. See, you can have your trust in what you do, or you can put your faith in the one who did it for you. And those are two very different things. And that's what this young man failed to discern. He didn't yet see Jesus for who he was. He didn't see Jesus as the one to whom is due the total surrender of faith. That it's not about himself, that it's not about the good things that he could do, but that it was about putting his faith in the one whom he knelt before. I mean, you get the picture. Running and kneeling before Jesus. Everything is perfect in the picture. Jesus there, a young man kneeling before Jesus. And yet the question's wrong. And the young man didn't understand that he was kneeling before the one who was, who is the perfect expression of goodness. He's asking about what is good. He's kneeling before goodness. Now, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Hebrews chapter 7, speaking of the goodness of Jesus, it says, for it's fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. If you're ever looking for a definition of goodness, what good thing must I do? Jesus is the definition. And the man was asking, what good thing can I do? And he failed to comprehend that he was kneeling right in front of the definition of goodness. It's kind of a, a crazy picture. And as he knelt before Jesus, really he had assumed mankind's perfect place of submission to the Son of God. The perfect posture of submission before the Son of God who is inherently good. You know, there was another occasion in Jesus' life and ministry when some folks came and they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? It's a good question. And Jesus answered them. He said this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They asked, what are the works of works, plural, that we must do? And Jesus said, the work of God is singular. It's one thing. There's only one work that God requires of you, that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you put your faith in me. And so here's this man kneeling before Jesus, asking about the good things that he should do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus doesn't make it easy for him. Now, sometimes I think when we tell the gospel to people, we make it too easy. It is easy, we need to be confronted with who we are at times and our sin. And Jesus knew that this young man needed to be led to a place where his ideal in regards to his goodness, his ideal in regards to his self-sufficiency was shattered. This young man had not yet come to the end of himself. He was still trusting in what he could do to attain eternal life. And for that matter, I would say this, he, he was acting as natural as any religious man. Relying on works rather than faith in the one who did the work. And so in verse 17, we 
we read that Jesus said this to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. See, Jesus' reply actually, you know, it's interesting because it doesn't focus on eternal life or salvation. Jesus forced this young man. He began to try and force him into a corner where he would have to think about his, about the nature and the definition of goodness. Actually, the other gospel accounts tell us that when the man posed this question to Jesus, he actually said, good teacher. He called him good teacher. What thing must I do to inherit? What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And so it's as if Jesus says, you, you address me by calling me good. You ask me about doing good. And so Jesus says, there's only one who's good. Only God is good. And so in your question, are you saying that you believe that I am good, therefore I am God? Jesus is trying to lead him down the path to see who he is. And if that man had believed that Jesus was truly good, that Jesus was God, then like I said, he had already assumed the perfect position of worship and submission, kneeling before God's good son, the son of God. And if that's the case, then he's already done everything that is necessary for eternal life. If Jesus was just another religious teacher like many before him, then his directions towards goodness were no greater than anyone else who came before him or after him. But if Jesus is good, if Jesus is good, then he is God. And I mean, forget the young man, this applies to you and I, then we better heed what he says. And so Jesus says to him, if you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. The question is this, why would Jesus bring up the commandments? Was he, was he teaching? Was he trying to teach the young man that he would receive eternal life by obeying commandments? I mean, it's, it's true that if anyone would perfectly keep the commandments of God, they would inherit eternal life. But the truth is this. None of us can keep God's commandments, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus did not lead the young man to the law to show the young man how to be saved. He led him to the law to show him that he needed to be saved. He was unaware of his own heart. You know, James tells us that God's law is like a mirror, that it reveals what we are. And so Jesus says, if you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. Go for it. Have at her, young man. He's showing the young man his need to be saved if he would just receive it. And the young man says in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Which ones? It's kind of a strange response, really, if you stop and think about it. A strange question. Because God's commandments, though they're very individual and unique in their function, they really come together as one whole unit. Whether you were to break one of them or all of them, the scripture says if you, you break God's law, you're a lawbreaker. Break one or break them all, you're a lawbreaker. Either way, James said in James 2 verse 10 that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That's you and me. I'm accountable for God for 
the entirety of God's law. Even if I just break one commandment. You know, it would be nice, you know, if you think about it, if we could just compartmentalize the commandments of the Lord, you know, oh God, I, I, I kept this all in order, I did this. But the truth is, if you break one, then, the, then in the spirit of the law, you break them all. You're a lawbreaker. The law represents the authority of God. And even to disobey what we might consider something just minor is still to rebel against the authority of Almighty God. And so I'm not sure what this young man was looking for when he asked, which ones? Break it down for me, Jesus. Wouldn't it be all of them? I don't know if he was craving for more. I think that that's what actually was going on, that he was religious in his nature. He was trusting his good works. Maybe he was thinking, if I cut myself like the prophets of Baal, like add some weight on me here, Jesus. You know, maybe if I swing from hooks on, strung through my back like the Hindus do. Maybe if I make my knees bloody climbing the steps of the Vatican and kissing the right feet or... Do I have to sacrifice my children to Chamosh? Like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Add something here. Is a tenth of my mint and rue not enough? And this young man must have only been thinking of external obedience and he forgot about the attitudes of his own heart. He must have never heard the Sermon on the Mount that anger in your heart is equivalent to murder. That lust is counted as adultery. He was a good man of, of good morals, but he didn't see his own sin and he didn't re repent before the Son of God and he didn't put his faith in Jesus. Instead, he asked, which ones? And again, Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've done. And so Jesus answered the young man, you know, he, he quotes the second half of the Ten Commandments here. Ten Commandments, as we know, they're divided into two parts. There's the first four are directed towards God, our relationship towards God. Uh, that ver vertical direction. The, the next six of the commandments are directed horizontally in our relationship towards other people. And they direct those. And Jesus quotes all the, he quote, all the commands that he quotes of the, the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship towards other people. Except he only quotes five. He leaves one out. He leaves out you sh the very last of the commandments. You shall not covet. You know, your neighbor's wife, his servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That, that one commandment, as we're going to see, specifically applied to this young man. Jesus left that one out. And the young man said in verse 20, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? I would say this, what do you still lack? You've, you lack allowing the law of God to accomplish its one purpose. Its purpose to reveal your sin. He didn't permit the light of the word of God to penetrate deeply enough. He'd never taken the law of God and gone below the surface in his life to weigh his heart, to judge the attitudes of his heart. For him, the law was just the external trapping of religion, you know, without heart change. You know, I read this story and I think this young man is the definition of religious conformity 
without internal heart transformation. And the truth is that the person who says, all these I've kept, Jesus, I kept them all, neither understands God's law nor his own heart and his own life. And that's why he still has this deep sense of lack. So I'm lacking something. There is something lacking in my life. Jesus, I do it all, and I can't figure out why something is amiss. You know, there's this deep sense of deficiency, this shortcoming. That, you know, I, I believe I've fulfilled all of your law and that there's like a rest missing in my soul. It's like I'm always behind. It's like I'm always showing up late. It's like I aim for the target and I fall short. Something is missing. It's lacking. And I, I, I think in this story, what, what this young man is sensing um, is what Paul called falling short of the glory of God. He was falling short of the glory of God and yet he was failing to see it in his own life. And the man's question is, is beautiful because he has hunger. He has hunger that he is coming to recognize as not being satisfied by outward obedience to laws and to rules. Something is leaving him wanting, but to this point, he's not learning what Jesus is dishing out. He doesn't need more commandments. Here's the thing about you and me. I, I don't need more commandments. You don't need more commandments. Heaping more and more rules will not fulfill uh, your sense of lack. It will not fulfill the sense of lack that this young man has. No, if you would have eternal life, it's not about what you do, but it's about where you put your faith. Because you can put your trust in what you do or you can put your faith in the one who did it for you. And I get this sense that this young man in the hunger of his heart, I mean, think about this. Jesus is almost annoying to him. Have you ever met people like that? That Jesus is annoying to them. You know, he's, he's annoyed that Jesus is pointing out and reiterating commands that are obvious. I know all these things, Jesus. Are you kidding me? You're taking me back to the Ten Commandments? I know that stuff. Don't annoy me. Don't patronize me. Like, heap rules on me. And you know, in my, in my life, I've, I've met people like that, where like Jesus is annoying to them. Sometimes I wonder about different religious communities, maybe the Jehovah Witnesses. If Jesus is annoying. You Christians, man. You're always bringing it back to Jesus. It's so stinking annoying. I'm knocking on your door. I'm like, I'm like fulfilling obligations of rules and law, and I'm earning it. Don't annoy me with Jesus. And there are so many people that are hungry for eternal life who can point to their good works they're virtuous lives. They're anxious. They're willing. Tell me to do anything and I'll do it. Willing to do whatever and fulfilling what is lacking and they can't seem to figure out why they always got the wrong end of the stick. What, what's going on here? Something's always amiss. Something is always lacking. And Jesus annoys me. You know, Mark's gospel says that it was at this point that Jesus looked at this young man and he loved him. 
I love that. That he had compassion on him. That, that he looked on him and he loved him. And with compassion, he said in verse 21, this is the voice of compassion. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The command is really intended to bring this young man to the end of himself. I mean, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible are we instructed that a sinner is saved by selling all of his possessions, giving his money away to the poor. Uh, Jesus never told anyone else to do this. Something very specific to this young man. And it's important to see the last part of Jesus' command. What's the last thing Jesus said? Come follow me. Come follow me. See, Jesus knew that in his heart, this was a covetous young man. The very command that Jesus had left out. He knew that this man loved material wealth. That's what this story is about. And by asking him to sell his goods and to give it away, Jesus was forcing this young man to experience what had not yet happened in the conversation, that he would feel the weight of his shortcoming. Jesus was forcing him to examine his heart and, and to see that in spite of how wonderful he was, he truly didn't love God with all of his heart because material wealth for him came first. Possessions and material wealth was his God. This young man was tied to the earth by cords of wealth. And I think that this is when the most tragic part of this whole encounter happens. As fascinating as this story is, there's nothing more sad and disastrous. There's, there's really no greater tragedy in life, a, a tragedy that is played out time and time again for many people that come before Jesus. Something, in all the tragedies of the world, if there's one thing that sh should break your heart, it's like what happens to this man. It should cause us to grieve and to pray. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I mean, tragic. On his knees, asking the questions to Jesus, and that's it. When Jesus says, sell your possessions, give it away, come follow me. No word from him. You know, it almost seems like he doesn't even stop to reflect. Doesn't stop to think about it. He seems to stand up, stunned, and silently walk off away from Jesus. Walk off in sorrow. You know, among many things that money cannot buy is eternal life. You know, I was thinking about the old hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." You know, just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. You know, the hymn writer says, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me, wilt, me, wilt be with me to the end. The young man had not come to the place of just simple 
trust in Jesus Christ and all that Jesus had done for him as the perfect, good son of God. And as he walked off, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard, Jesus says. It's, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now the question is why? Why? Well, because riches can make a person independent of God. It's like, I don't need you. I don't need to think about you. There's a roof over my head. There's food on my table. There's clothes on my back. There's money in my bank account. Who needs God? And it's interesting that Jesus gives this saying that you're familiar with that he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The camel in the eye of the needle. You know, different people suggest different things about it. Um, You know, some Bible commentators say that there was a, a gate in Jerusalem and it was a low gate. And so what you had to do was unload all the goods off the camel because the camel couldn't fit through, loaded up with goods and standing on his feet through the gate. And so you have to remove all these things and then get the camel down on his knees and then shuffle him through the gateway. And so it's, it's, it's hard, but it's not impossible. You just got to remove the right things off your life and, and it'll work. But I, I really don't think that that's the case. I think Jesus is speaking literally, you know, he's using some humor here. A camel in the eye of a needle. It doesn't work. You know, I heard one youth pastor say one time long ago, unless you take the camel and blend them up, then, then you can get them through there. Isn't that disgusting? It just got stuck in my head unless you blend them up. But no, the point is this is impossible. Putting a camel through the eye of the needle. And the disciples got that it was impossible because the scripture says they were astonished at this word. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? See, the disciples were astonished because in those days, the rabbis taught that the closer a person was to God, the richer you're going to be. Like prosperity gospel, just like it is in our day, prosperity theology was around even back then. But contrary to the theology of the rabbis, contrary to the way the disciples had been raised and taught, Jesus actually says something incredible, and I think it's important for us, especially in our culture, that riches can actually hinder you from entering the kingdom of God. That your wealth, your possessions, your material goods can stand between you and the kingdom of heaven. And this was astonishing to the disciples. They were, this blew their minds. They said, what? I thought if I was righteous, money comes in, you know? Like, I'm like... And so in their minds, it's like the richer a person is, obviously he's righteous. I mean, look at the young man. He's honorable. He's righteous and he's wealthy, of course, because that goes hand in hand. But verse 26 says that Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You know, riches aren't inherently evil. We know that. The love of money is the root of all evil, but there were many rich, righteous men in the scripture. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. How about King David? How about Solomon? Did did his wealth get him off track? Certainly. 
But there were men who were saved by grace and by the power of God, even though they were rich. What? Yeah. The rich man needs the grace of God in his life. So real is the peril of riches that Jesus actually says this, that you need to count victory over riches as something that is beyond human power. Do you understand that? It's like your wealth is in the way. And any victory over it in a relationship with God is because God granted grace. Not because you're so awesome. Not because I'm so awesome. Because I'm really rich. That was a joke. For victory over riches, Jesus says this, you need a miracle. You need a miracle to happen for victory over riches. Riches need the grace of God. And Peter got it. Peter got it because the disciples, as we know, they'd left everything to follow Jesus. And so he says in verse 27, see, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There's a lot in there. We're not going to unpack it all this morning, but, you know, often we think, man, I make sacrifices for the kingdom maybe. You know, it's a sacrifice to bring my tithe. It's a, it's a sacrifice to do this. It's a sacrifice of my time. It's a sacrifice. And what Jesus says is actually, we're not making sacrifices. We're making investments. It's cool. A hundredfold. I mean, none of your investments are ever going to do that for you. <laughs> We're making investments. And not all dividends come to fruition in this life. Not all dividends are realized in this world. Jesus actually says this about the 12. He says, you're, you're going to receive, man. You left, you've left everything. It's true. And you're going to sit on 12 thrones. And in the millennial kingdom, it, w w when things are remade, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel and sit as rulers. We're not making sacrifices for the kingdom. We're making investments. And then Jesus says this. He, we'll close on this verse. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, it's a warning. It's a warning that he gives to Peter in the midst of all of this. Peter's like, hey, man, we left everything. Jesus like, that's right. And you're going to be blessed. You're going to sit on a throne because of it. But Jesus gives this warning. Watch out, you know, in a sense. It's easy to be proud of what you've given to follow Jesus. And Jesus says in heaven, in, in the new world, uh, there are going to be some surprises that many who thought they were first are going to be last and many who we thought were last shall be first. And you know, when I think about this 
passage, when I just, when we zoom out and we back out and we consider the whole thing, I, I just think that this passage calls us to the grace of God. It calls us to overcome love of this world, to invest in the kingdom. You know, it calls us to overcome the love of the world and, and yet that that can't happen in our strength, you know. We're dependent. I'm dependent upon the grace of God. It's like if I'm over going to overcome the wealth that I have, if I'm going to overcome the love that I have for this world, then I need the grace of God. You need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. I mean, how do we find victory over this world? How do we find victory over the riches of the world? It's beyond our power. We need God's grace. And this whole passage of scripture points us to Jesus and to the grace of God that is found in him who is eternally good. Inherently good. And the human heart, my heart, your heart, without the law of God getting in there and revealing what's, what's, reveal, what's, what's in there, the treacherous evil that's in our hearts, without that, that happen. Well, you know, when I think about this story, I, I, as I consider the story, I, I really hope and I just believe in the goodness of Jesus that this young man eventually came to a place of surrender where he came to realize it, it's not about what I'm going to do. It's about where I'm going to put my faith. It's, you know, I can put my trust in what I do or I can put my faith in the one Jesus who did it for me who made sacrifice for me, who, who went to a cross for me, who, who died in my place, who was, who was buried and raised from the dead. How do we overcome? How do we get victory? Well, it's always beyond your power. It comes as we put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that that's the thrust of this text, to see that to see that Jesus is God, that Jesus is perfectly good, and that he is worthy of our trust and worthy of our faith. He wants to set us free. Set us free from the law of sin and death. Set us free from this constant striving in the sense of lack and lead us to a place of rest as we just put our trust in him. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, actually. I think that this is a text that just naturally <clears throat> naturally points us to the, the gospel message. That message that we know from the scripture that we're, we are designed by God for relationship. That our, our lives were created to be a home for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our lives were created to be his dwelling place. A place where he rules. And we know what the scripture says. That man instead chose self-sufficiency, self-reliance, rebellion. And that, that choice brought separation to his relationship with God. And 
we all uh, bear the brunt of that. We're all born in sin. Born in that place, like the young man, where we think we're self-sufficient. We think we're going to provide. And Jesus came and he gave his life on the cross. He gave his life for the sin of mankind so that if we would, rather than put our trust in ourselves, put our faith in him, we would be given the gift for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life is a gift, not something that is earned. And so this morning, I just uh, invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, we just acknowledge before you, before heaven right now, Jesus, maybe we need to come running like the young man. You are inherently good. That Jesus, we are not. That Jesus... You perfectly fulfilled God's law and we fall short of it. And Jesus, we thank you that for our sin, for our shortcoming, you went to the cross. You died. You gave your life. You were buried. You were raised from the dead. And Jesus, I thank you that you, you constantly hold out your hands to us. And you say, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And Lord, I just pray if there's any here this morning that's never made that step of faith to trust you, maybe never come to the realization that they're even trusting in their good works. God, I pray that in your grace, you'd set them free from what is lacking this morning and show them that you're entirely sufficient for all of their needs. Jesus, it's a sweet thing to trust you. Jesus, we ask for grace to trust you more. Jesus, we ask that you would give us grace to overcome our love of the world, our dependence on riches and wealth. Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us of even having those attitudes. Jesus, we repent of that this morning. We turn from it. We, we look to you as being everything we need and we pray, God, like the invitation that you gave to that young man that we would come and follow you, that we would go hard after you. And I pray that for each person here this morning, Jesus, in your name, amen.